Five weeks, five missed COBRA meetings. As the coronavirus crisis grew, what was the government really doing? And where was Boris Johnson? And it wasn't until the 2nd of March that he actually held his first COBRA meeting on the coronavirus. And we know now that by then, the virus had taken hold across the country. Britain used to have a world-class system for dealing with a pandemic. So what happened? Britain just took its eye off the ball and just didn't put enough effort and enough money into making sure that our defences were the highest possible level that they could be. The Sunday Times Insight investigation exposed a catalogue of failures and missed opportunities in the government's response to COVID-19. It was an investigation which led to an unprecedented response from the government, which we will address in this podcast. You're listening to Stories of Our Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, 38 days when Britain sleepwalked into disaster. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now, as ever, to the front pages. The Sunday Times Insight team has written this huge, long write-through, basically about the government's failures in handling the coronavirus crisis. And taken all in all, it is a pretty devastating piece of journalism. It's a brilliant piece of journalism, analysing those first 38 days. There were five COBRA meetings, those emergency meetings in January and February, but Boris Johnson didn't attend any of them. According to a report in the Sunday Times, it's a pretty damning investigation by the paper saying that the government lost five weeks in the fight against coronavirus. I'm uh, George Abathnot, uh, and I'm the Deputy Insight Editor of the Sunday Times. I'm Jonathan Calvert. I'm the editor of the Insight team. Insight is the investigations hub for the Sunday Times. I think George has had the virus, haven't you, George? I think so, although obviously I can't be sure because we can't get tests. But I had a fever, um, cough, headaches, dizziness for a week or two. So I think it's quite likely. I had to isolate from the rest of my family because um, we've got my mother-in-law living with us, who's in her 60s. And so I was a bit lonely at home and I, I didn't have much else to do in, our, in locked in our spare room with, with my wife coming in in her, in her goggles and mask. So I thought I may as well carry on working. <laughs> you just served on hand and foot. <laughs> I, I did feel a bit guilty about that, I have to say. Jonathan and George broke the story that's focused the national conversation about how well the government has coped with the coronavirus crisis. 
Like many of their investigations, it drew on information and accounts from a number of sources and a whistleblower who had detailed knowledge of what was happening behind the scenes. It all began with a phone call. So the whistleblower, we actually reached out to ourselves and I put a call into them and was just kind of hoping that I knew how well placed they were to know what was going on in, in the inside the machinery of government. And that's always the great challenge of these things is to try and, you know, reach into the inner workings of, of this and, and try and get the truth of, of what's been going on. They they did pick up and they felt so strongly about it that they felt it was worth the risk of talking to us. And I think it was when I first made the call, I was still in bed with <laughs> hopefully with the virus and they gave me about an hour on the phone and and it's 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 taken a number of weeks working with them to build up the full picture and and properly download all their knowledge I, you know we're hugely grateful to them and it's they've provided an incredibly invaluable insight they said it's a massive spider's web of failing every domino has fallen and that really did ring home to me, quite how serious a situation we've now been left in. The key, to obviously, at that point was to then corroborate what they were saying and as much as we can. So we've, we've been speaking to other sources uh, with knowledge of the situation and we were able to build up a real body of evidence that, that supported exactly what they were saying. Yeah, we worked with our colleague, Jonathan Leake, um, who is an incredibly experienced science and environmental editor. He gave us invaluable help on the science that went into the article and uh, dug out some interesting stuff, actually. We actually spoke to a lot of people in preparing the article. There were scientists, academics, doctors, emergency planners, public officials, politicians, and, of course, um, government whistleblowers. We wanted to know how they saw the root of the crisis and whether they felt that the government should have known sooner and maybe acted more swiftly. One of our key tools was our giant timeline spreadsheet. Um, we spent days filling it in. George loves them. Um, it allowed us to look back on the unfolding crisis with fresh eyes and we could add into it documentary evidence of scientific warnings and findings, government actions, leaked pandemic plans, ministerial statements, and death rates and all sorts of things. We currently have about 180 detailed individual date entries in our spreadsheet across the period. It was the basis for building a clearer picture of what has taken place. Remember late January? I know it feels like a lifetime ago, but back then the news was dominated by Brexit, floods and a mysterious virus detected in China. And that's when the story George and Jonathan have been tracing really begins. On the 24th of January, there was a growing realisation that the virus that had started off as some sort of novel pneumonia cases in China before the new year was actually becoming something quite exceptional and dangerous, that it was making its way out of China. The chief medical officer has revised the risk to the UK population from very low to low and has concluded that while there is an increased likelihood that cases may arise in this country, we are well prepared and well equipped to deal with them. 
In Scotland, there are now five suspected cases and a patient in Belfast is also undergoing precautionary tests. But medical experts say it's likely to take several days until the virus is confirmed. I think there was a general appreciation amongst the scientists we've spoken to that this was a coming danger. And so the government did an unusual thing, which is that it called its COBRA committee. The COBRA committee is the top-level body that deals with threats to the national interest. It has ministers and Downing Street advisers, and it can have intelligence officers and military personnel on it. Um, they get together when there's a terrorist attack or some sort of natural disaster or catastrophe, such as flooding or maybe even foot-and-mouth disease or something like that. We just held a, a COBRA meeting on the coronavirus. Matt Hancock came out and quickly dismissed the threat and said that the risk to the UK public was very low. The risk uh, to the public remains low. This was despite the fact that on that day, the Lancet had actually published a study that had been conducted by the Chinese scientists looking at cases in Wuhan, the initial cases. And what they said was quite extraordinary. This new novel virus had a lethal potency which was almost up there with the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. The other unusual thing about that COBRA meeting is that in this particular case, Boris Johnson didn't attend. I suspect he had other things on his mind because it was that very day that he was signing the withdrawal treaty from the European Union. In a statement, he said, this is a fantastic moment which finally delivers the result of the 2016 referendum and brings to an end far too many years of argument and division. We can now what we then the looked at was really what happened over the next five weeks because it was five weeks before the Prime Minister would actually get round to chairing a COBRA meeting. And from all the people we've spoken to, the impression seems to be that we did far too little in that time. Paint a picture for us of the timeline of when they first got a warning and how many weeks seem to have been wasted before anything happens. There was a kind of growing realisation at the end of January and the beginning of February among scientists and experts that this was a serious problem and it was spreading and it had already got out of China and it was moving all over the place. And so our sources thought that this was the point where we should have kicked into action with our pandemic planning. They thought at that stage we should have made sure that they were able to produce enough tests for the virus and enough equipment to protect our hospital staff so that we'd be able to deal with the pandemic if it came. But there seems to have been quite a lot of drift throughout the month of February. And there were a lot of scientists out there who were warning about it, but felt that nobody was listening to them. One scientist was saying to me that he was told by a very senior person in the NHS that, oh, you're always predicting pandemics and they never happen. This will just be the same. But it wasn't. What sort of scientific advice were the politicians getting at this stage? Prior to the first COBRA meeting about the virus on the 24th of January, the government's own scientists were preparing a report to ministers which revealed that the virus had a comparable infectivity rate to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed 50 million people. 
The report also warned that there may need to be a 60% reduction in transmission of the virus in order to avoid a huge number of casualties. And in layman's terms, that, that means a potential lockdown to the country. That report was delivered to ministers on the day of the first COBRA meeting. Um, yet the health secretary emerged after that meeting and declared the risk to the UK was low. And afterwards, ministers did not then act to restore shortfills in training or equipment or initiate key parts of its pandemic plan. Indeed, by late February, scientists were warning that policymakers that the UK could suffer 380,000 deaths if measures were not taken to limit its spread. How do you go from the scientific advice being that this is catastrophic and we need to lock down, we need to stop life as we know it, to two days later saying this isn't a problem? What the experts we've spoken to say is that the scientific advice wasn't properly listened to and interrogated by the politicians and the political advisers. They just hadn't properly absorbed the implications of what the scientists were saying. Preparations prior to the outbreak, um, which is called our sort of pandemic planning, had been inadequate. We'd, we'd produced some very good pandemic planning post 9-11 and up to kind of 2010. But after that, it had been given a, less of a priority. And indeed, we hadn't even practiced the plan since 2016. And the result of that was that the stockpiles of PPE, for example, had been allowed to dwindle, had been allowed to go out of date. There was a long list of recommendations that came out of the last exercise simulating a pandemic back in 2016. The source says that they mostly weren't implemented. How prepared were we? It was called Exercise Cygnus. Exercise Cygnus was to see how prepared we were for a flu-type pandemic, such as SARS or something like that, coming from Asia. And we failed miserably. It found that the NHS would have been completely overrun. It also mentions that we wouldn't have enough ventilators and we wouldn't have enough personal protection equipment. So it's not as if um, this is a surprise. I mean, this had all been flagged up by exercise sickness. We've been told that there were pandemic plan meetings at the end of last year that were just constantly being bumped off the schedule because other issues were deemed to be more important. Yeah, apparently they used to joke that I hope there's not a pandemic because we were not prepared for it. The whole planning for an emergency such as this had become a casualty of both austerity and then latterly planning for a no-deal Brexit. The risk of a pandemic has been at the top of the British Risk Register for years, and yet it just seems to have fallen by the wayside. It's one of those saving for a rainy day things, isn't it? And they weren't saving for a rainy day. And Jonathan, is it true that Britain had actually been sort of a paragon uh, at planning for pandemics before all this? Yeah, in the years after 9-11, there was a lot of funding went into emergency planning and we were quite well resourced in that respect. That's right. And you can see that because in Singapore, they actually copied our plan and 
we've spoken to a man called Martin Hibbard at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And he was in quite a unique position to um, compare the UK's response with Singapore. And his, his exact quote was, the interesting thing for me is, I've worked with Singapore in 2003 and 2009, and basically they copied the UK pandemic preparedness plan. But the difference is they actually implemented it. It's really surprising that we had this great planning in place up until about 2010. We also had Operation Cygnus in 2016, which showed a list of failures, and yet nothing gets done. I mean, what were the scientists saying around this time? Were they getting worried? Yeah, a lot of people saw it as inevitable that we would get some sort of pandemic at some point. We've spoken to a public health professional who was telling us that two years ago she predicted exactly this at a speech at the Hay Festival. But if actually the largest threat, if we use the word, to the UK population is someone in China who's been infected from an animal that's received antibiotics to improve its growth, is transferred to the farmer, which is transferred to community, and gets on a plane to the UK. What good is it for the UK just to be worried about what's happening here? I mean, it's, it is why it is regarded as the number one threat to the UK. Britain just took its eye off the ball and just didn't put enough effort and enough money into making sure that our defences were the highest possible level that they could be. When the scientists gave warnings to the government back in January that one person could pass this to three, it was only a matter of time before we would have thousands of cases of coronavirus in the UK because obviously we're, we're quite vulnerable. There was a study by Southampton University and it found that something like 190,000 people came from China to the UK during the key period, i.e. sort of January through to March. That would have meant that probably there were about 1,900 people who had coronavirus coming in and mixing with the UK population. And so that there was never a chance of stopping it. What we had to do was we had to prepare to deal with it when it came. There seemed to be a complete lack of obvious action taken in January and February to actually ramp up the testing in, in, in much more kind of simple ways, which would have involved reaching out to the British diagnostic sector and asking them for help. We've spoken to the British In Vitro Diagnostics Association and their chief executive called Doris Ann Williams, which represents 110 companies that make up most of that sector. And she says that they didn't have any approach or meaningful approach from the government until the 1st of April, which was the night before Matt Hancock stood up and announced that they were trying to do 100,000 tests. I am now setting the goal of 100,000 tests per day by the end of this month. That is the goal, and I am determined that we will get there. Even in the middle of March, they still hadn't had the wherewithal to go out to the industry in, in, in a concerted way and, and, and ask for help. Because there's been so many questions asked, as you say, about testing for months now. I mean, didn't the Prime Minister even say that all the tests people would be using around the world would be coming from, from Britain? <laughs> That's right. I mean, we have actually discovered that the, the situation got so desperate at the end of March that Boris Johnson was apparently phoning up the testing manufacturers and asking them directly for help himself. <laughs> wow. And they got the Prime Minister himself, not his staff, not people at Downing Street. It was the Prime Boris Minister Johnson himself. himself making the phone calls. That's right. 
I'm Saeed Vasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Most people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We have a contact who has been advising Downing Street on their response, and they were just quite astonished that Boris Johnson had not taken the helm on this issue far earlier. So not only did he not attend the 24th of January Cobra meeting, there were four more Cobra meetings that stretched through January and then through February, which he failed to turn up to. And in the meantime, he found time to celebrate Chinese New Year, went to his grace and favour mansion in Kent called Chavening and disappeared from the public eye for 12 days. And, I mean, he was clearly dealing with some personal matters at the time. Um, The announcement of his engagement was coming up and he was also finalising his divorce. How can the country trust a prime minister, a part-time prime minister? And surprisingly, when when he finally returned to the Commons... He was lambasted for being a part-time Prime Minister. Last night, last night, schmoozing Tory party donors at a very expensive black tie ball. And all throughout that period, the scientists were increasingly raising the warning signs that this was a serious thing that needed to be properly, properly addressed by, you know, the top man. Even then, at the end of February, the concerns were getting bigger and bigger. And... Rather than hold Cobra as soon as he got back from Chavening, he then had another weekend in Chequers. The single most useful thing that we can all do to support our NHS to stop the spread of uh, coronavirus is to wash our hands. Two times happy birthday, hot water and, and soap. Other than that, though, I wish to stress that at the moment it's very important that people consider that they should, as far as possible, go about business as usual. And this was while we were getting warnings from the World Health Organization, from scientists around the world who were starting to take it very, very seriously. What are your contacts in Downing Street saying? What what did they make of the Prime Minister's behaviour? Well, they feared that he wasn't a, a serious enough figure to really grip these kind of disastrous scenarios for the country in in the right way. And they say that, unfortunately, they think that he proved them right on this one. There was a real sense that he didn't do urgent crisis planning. It was exactly like people feared he would be. The other issue has been the the PPE. On the 24th of February, two days before NHS chief executives were about to warn that we were walking into a nightmare situation, we actually sent hundreds of thousands of pieces of PPE to China which is where they actually manufacture it. And ever since then, we've been desperately trying to get the Chinese to send, send some back to us. Like one of our sources who is based at the London Hospital says that in January they, they did ask the NHS if the PPE stockpiles were going to be OK and that, did, did they have enough. And they were assured absolutely that there'd be no problem. But now you see what's going on now and, you know, people... Um, having to wear bin bags in hospitals because there are no gowns. Yet, on the 24th of February, the government confirmed 
that we'd sent 37,500 medical gowns to China. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we obviously just didn't have any appreciation of, of, at all of how serious this would be, despite the scientific warnings. And by the beginning of March, all the PPE equipment has been bought up around the world. The substances that you need to create the coronavirus tests are starting to dry up because everyone's trying to use them. And we're facing what we're facing now, which is possibly the worst outbreak of coronavirus in Europe, actually. From everyone you've spoken to, who do you think took their eye off the ball? Was it the scientists who weren't warning enough? Was it the politicians who didn't pick up the warnings? Where did it all go wrong? I think the scientists could see that there was a serious problem. There is evidence that this was communicated to government. The fact that it didn't lead to any great activities seems to suggest that the problem was was in government and a failure to coordinate and lead and get the machine of government working to protect the population from this virus. I now feel quite exercised about the fact that he, um, he didn't act swiftly or lead the action swiftly enough at the beginning and, and there's so few tests and so many people across the country, like myself, just have no idea if we've had the virus or not. And it, it leaves us in a very difficult position where we, we kind of hope we have and it got some immunity and we can now start to go about our daily lives in a slightly more effective way. But we, we're just left, you know, bereft in that sense. What also concentrated in my mind was that, tragically, obviously, compared to many other people, I've been very lucky. The situation doesn't compare to the thousands who've obviously lost their lives, all like Boris, who have had to go into intensive care. And it's, it's the sheer gravity of the crisis that I think makes it so important that we do scrutinise the government's actions rather than just cheerleading unquestioningly from the sidelines. And not least, we owe it to the NHS workers, obviously, themselves, who are currently on the front line, relying on the government to equip them with their right kit to protect them from the virus. And you know, they're currently in danger of, of being failed in that uh, at the moment. George, what, what did the government say when you presented them with your evidence? We had sources who were close to the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who said that from late January, they had instituted a prepare-for-the-worst attitude on the virus and had held meetings each day and started work on boosting PPE supplies. And they also said that uh, they kicked off internal work on ventilator procurement in mid-February once it was clear that extra capacity was required. When the article was published, it went absolutely everywhere. It's been the only thing people have been talking about and every minister seems to have been asked about it. What sort of responses were you getting from, from the ministers? Michael Gove um, went on, Andrew Marr um, and Sophie Ridge. Uh, he didn't, but then he wouldn't, uh, because most COBRA meetings don't have the Prime Minister attending them. That is the whole point. I was desperately um, defending the, the Boris Johnson, saying that, you know, it wasn't um, usual. Uh, you know, Prime Minister didn't always attend the COBRA meetings, etc. But then the government issued a much longer response, which is, is unprecedented, actually, for um, any story I've, I've ever worked on with the government, where they produce a kind of full 14-point response. The thrust of it was, and I quote, this article contains a series of falsehoods and errors and actively misrepresents the enormous amount of work which was going on in government at the earlier stages of the coronavirus outbreak. This is an unprecedented global pandemic and we have taken this right steps at the right time to combat it, guided at all times by the best scientific evidence. 
the government has been working day and night to battle against coronavirus, delivering a strategy designed at all times to protect our NHS and save lives. Our response has ensured that the NHS has been given all the support it needs to ensure everyone requiring treatment has received it, as well as providing protection to businesses and reassurance to others. The Prime Minister has been at the helm of the response to this, providing leadership during this hugely challenging period for the whole nation. It was quite an unusual uh, statement, and I don't think think I've ever seen anything like it. They'd obviously had a team of civil servants and political aides working on this through Sunday, and I think they were a bit rattled by it. We, of course, absolutely stand by our article, and we believe it was of immense public interest. Uh, It was based on impeccable sourcing. We believe it was thoroughly researched, and we communicated it responsibly. We've done many stories over the year holding power to account. Um, It's our job as investigative journalists to question the actions of those who lead us. I mean, it's in the public interest to do so. And, you know, it's a process that kind of makes a much more open and healthy society. But we don't expect they're always going to like what we say. And we're kind of quite used to them coming back quite um, strongly or aggressively. In this case... They did make several aggressive assertions, which um, really, when we looked at them, didn't seem to have any foundation when we went through them. The only point we could see that they actually did point to that we had got something wrong was that January the 24th, which was kind of the beginning of our story because so many things happened then, was the fourth Friday in January and not the third Friday. We regret the error, but it didn't change the, the piece whatsoever as we did have the correct date. And it really doesn't change any of the other points um, that we've reported. One of their main points was it was unusual for a prime minister to miss COBRA. We did some painstaking searches through official government records to see how common it was for a prime minister to miss COBRA. And it's clear that overwhelmingly the presumption is that the prime minister will mostly chair COBRA with ministers standing in when the prime minister is away or can't do it. Usually that's when the the prime minister is travelling abroad. So the five meetings that Boris Johnson missed were held in the cabinet office bridging rooms just behind Downing Street. Yet we can see that Boris was actually in Westminster during the day on four of those five meetings and the fifth he was only in Kent. Um but he chose not to turn up. The examples the government used to try and make their case that um, it wasn't unusual for a prime minister to miss COBRA, they only gave three, and they're just not comparable to failing to turn up to five times on such an important subject as this virus. They use one example from a long time ago. They point out that Alan Johnson, who was then the Home Secretary, chaired a COBRA meeting on swine flu in 2009. So we had a look at it and we checked it out. And it turned out that this was because the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, was actually in Poland on official business at the time. And what's more, Gordon Brown had actually taken the time to telephone into the meeting that was chaired by Johnson. Another example they used was that during the collapse of Thomas Cook last year, last September, they say that Grant Shapps chaired a COBRA meeting. But that was because what happened was the Civil Aviation Authority announced the collapse at 2am on the Monday morning. And at the time, Johnson certainly couldn't have gone to a a COBRA meeting that morning because um, he was on a flight to the United States where that morning he was was meeting world leaders at the UN. Um, So it would have been possible for him to have chaired COBRA. 
In fact, the, the government's former chief scientific advisor, David King, said yesterday that during the Blair and Brown premiership, he couldn't remember a single Cobra meeting, these are quotes, when the Prime Minister wasn't in the chair. We certainly found no precedent for a Prime Minister missing five Cobra meetings in a row over any crisis. We can be confident that that never previously occurred over a, a crisis of this magnitude. They're also quite defensive about their efforts to secure PPE kit in January and February, uh, which obviously has become a huge issue now with hospitals almost running out. And their evidence that they provided for that was that they placed their first orders uh, at the end of January and also they had held kind of webinars with suppliers, had chats with with people in Europe. But what we were quite struck by was we assumed that they must have got some delivery of PPE kit in January and February. But that statement makes no mention of that at all, which we, we were surprised by. And, and potentially it's, it suggests that actually they did less than uh, we expected. And the other point was that they post the 11th of February and the beginning of March between those two dates. They didn't actually provide any details of any activity at all which again, we were, we were surprised by. We, we were expecting them to produce a much fuller list of concrete actions that they'd actually carried out to try and remedy something which we, we know the, the stockpiles were already low on. And Jonathan, what did they say about the scientific advice? Well, they, were, they gave us the example of two scientists from that particular day that we were talking about, which was the 24th of January, when a lot of things happened. And we made a point in the articles of kind of starting on that day because there were so many different things happening when it's kind of it was starting to become clear that coronavirus was a problem. And the most surprising thing was that um, in that list of six experts, um, alongside the two they'd used, there was um, a man called Dr. Jeremy Farrer, who, in fact, was one of the government's own um, experts. He's a member of the uh, SAGE committee, and he had a quote in there which um, they didn't use in their rebuttal, and he said this. He said at the time, which is January the 24th, this virus has crossed from animals into people. That does not happen often, and it is with doubt very serious. People are scarred by the memory of SARS, and a global outbreak of a novel respiratory virus like this is something experts have warned about for many years. He was clearly very concerned about the virus at that time, and we don't know why the government decided to omit that quote from their rebuttal, which clearly showed that what we were saying was correct. Another of the government's rebuttals claimed that the UK's donation of 279,000 pieces of PP to China in February was, were not from stockpiles and say that we received 12 million pieces of PPE from China in April. On their stockpile point, we just viewed that as semantics. I mean, the key point was that we had the PPE in our possession and then we gave it away just before we desperately needed it. And then the interesting thing on the 12 million items they got from China is that in their initial response to us, the government admitted that they had been commercially purchased by the British government from China. Yet in their public rebuttal, they appear to have deliberately left out that line. Giving something away for free is obviously different to then us having to buy it back. Um, but the point we were really trying to make with that element was that the donation revealed the government's mentality in February, that they had enough PPE to give away. And their response suggests it then took them until April 
to get big orders back from China whilst they had finally realised that they were dangerously short. Did having coronavirus change your, your view of the story? It certainly brought it home to me um, what an impact it can have on people's lives. You know, we're, we're trying to do the right thing by our families and isolating yourself from your children um, and wife is extremely yeah, difficult. And, you know, my kids were looking through the window at me and they're two and a half years old and one year old and two and a half year old was saying, you know, why, why can't I give you a hug, Dad? And eventually he understood that, like he said to me, you're, you're, you're poorly, aren't you? So it made, it made me more passionate about reporting this, you know, accurately and trying to ensure that we kind of truthfully reflect what's gone on so that it can hopefully inform the situation in the future and make sure that things are done better if this ever happens again. Having done the, done the reporting and, and then you watch the government press conferences and all the interviews by ministers where they're absolutely insistent that they've handled this well, it, it does great. <laughs> and that's why you know, we, we want to publish a story so that um, people can read what the people behind the scenes are saying and then they can listen to the ministers' arguments and then they can make up their own mind. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot, the Insight Investigations team at The Sunday Times. You can read more of Jonathan and George's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were James Shield, William Rowe and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. Investigations like this have never been more important. To support the journalism done by The Times and for access to all of the stories the paper produces, you can subscribe now at thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. If you liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 